So over the last several weeks, we've been, uh, we've been studying this, this uh, letter from the Apostle Paul, a love letter, a letter of concern, of encouragement to this newly formed church. Uh, we've heard about the establishing of the church. We've heard Paul exhort this church to endure under suffering. We've reflected on the impact and influence of the gospel what constitutes pure versus impure motives in ministry, the fact that at some level all Christians should expect persecution, and though suffering brings with it a specific set of temptations, the Christian community should be a place of mutual encouragement. This morning we enter into a shift in Paul's letter. Um, Often Paul's letters are kind of of split up in, in two parts. Um, one that is a little more heavy on doctrine, though, again, First and Second, Second Thessalonians tend to be a little more personal, a little less doctrinally heavy. But he's usually, in the first half of the letters, a little more about doctrine, and then in the second half, a little more about how that should play out in our lives. So, on the heels of his prayer, if you remember at the end of chapter 3, for an increased love and strength unto holiness... He moves on to these issues concerning Christian conduct. And we're reminded how God expects, He expects that those who receive the good message of Jesus, that that good message wouldn't be a once and done event, but that it would then enter into our lives and have an impact on every area of our everyday lives. John Stott comments how too often Christians have become known as people who preach the gospel rather than those who live and adorn it. So let's, we're just going to focus on the first eight verses this morning. I'm going to read them in their entirety. Chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living... Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject Man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So it has to happen every once in a while, right? You might say to yourself, well, it's got to happen every once in a while, right? There's got to be, there's got to be these occasional teachings about how prudish God is. And, and, how, and how we should all feel so, so guilty about sex. Except that's not really true. <laughs> it's not really true. Uh, in fact, God is no prude. It is God who 
has created sex after all, and has created us as sexual beings. And the scriptures themselves, if we're honest, are far less prudish when it comes to being frank about matters of sex than are the average Christian or the average church. Uh, Some people enter into sections of scripture like this and they begin to almost just go into this mode where they they tune out a little bit because they say, well, here, here Paul is now just listing a bunch of do's and don'ts. And, and so much of the Bible just, just seems like a bunch of do's and don'ts. But that's, again, not true. Because when you read this, as opposed to kind of a rigid, uh, legalistic set of rules, Paul is, is framing this out. And the New Testament places our driving force for moral purity... Christian conduct within the framework of an active relationship with God. An active relationship with God. Paul says that that we should be those who long to please God. He begins this section, interestingly, with with finally brothers. He's got a lot more of the letter to write, but it's it's, it's cueing us in that there is a shift in, in what he's talking about. But not only that, that he's laid the groundwork for what will follow. He's laid the groundwork for the instruction that is to come. If, we're to, if we've received the good message of Jesus, that though we have rebelled against the Creator God, He has made a way for forgiveness, made a way for reconciliation by Jesus laying down His life on the cross, that when we turn to Him in repentance and faith, the risen Lord, we can be saved from ourselves and saved from the judgment of God, and not only into that, but brought into a family relationship with God, brought into his new kingdom, made sons and daughters, given all the rights of sons and daughters. If we've received the good message of Jesus, if we now understand ourselves as members of his family, if we are objects of his love, if we've placed ourselves under the lordship of Christ, if we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then the behavior of our lives should really then be a natural outflow of those realities. But that's not to say that there doesn't need to be teaching and instruction in what those realities are and how they should match the behavior. So we see here that Paul has said he has instructed them but there, obviously now Timothy has come back with a report and he feels like he needs to encourage them further. We'll be living. It says, it says um, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. That living literally is walking in a way that pleases God when our behavior is that reflection of what God has done inward. Now, some people might say at this point, and this is a struggle, and I get it. Some people always say, now, don't, doesn't my life already please God because I am saved by Jesus' blood, I am a son or a daughter of the king when I come into relationship with him, I am under the covenant of grace, so doesn't my life automatically please God? Seems to be that, it seems to me that there's two, two extremes, maybe we can say, when it comes to this 
this topic. For one, there's a Christian that believes that their life is perpetually pleasing to God, no matter what they do. Um, That it doesn't really matter what they do or say or think. Because they are living under God's grace, their life is always a pleasure to the God that they call their own. The other extreme is the Christian who has kind of a, 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 a constant aware of how short they fall of God's standards, how short they fall of perfection. And then because of that, live their lives as if they are never pleasing God, and they live in a perpetual state of guilt. And really, neither of these extremes are healthy. Um, while it's 100% true, right? You may have heard this before. 100% true that there's nothing we can do to make God love us what? More. And there's nothing we can do to make us God love us less, right? That's 100% true. But it is naive to think that though that is true, that means that everything I do is pleasing to God. On the other hand, God is a God of infinite patience. He's a God of unimaginable love, a God of mercy and grace. He's a God that judges the heart and and I think even sees in our heart when we long to and desire to do right. And he's a God, like I said, in that of great mercy. So this idea of a perpetual guilt as a child of God also is not in order. So perhaps the best way to, to relate to this concept of pleasing God is to relate it to a healthy and loving parent and child relationship. I say healthy and loving because there are plenty of parent-child relationships that actually are unhealthy and they may encourage, if they're permissive, they may encourage license. If they're overly authoritative, they may encourage perpetual shame and guilt, right? So there's a lot of unhealthy parent-child relationships, but a healthy parent-child relationship is one that is loving, one that kind of has this unshakable love of their son and daughter. They're they're wanting and training and sometimes disciplining out of love. Um, They're they're pointing toward, they're offering, they're creating environments that foster health, that foster goodness, right, for their children. And and it's it's when the child chooses the opposite that the parent may come into this place where it's just naturally not pleasing to them. And, and a lot of parents can relate to that. You, you, as, I might have an unshakable parental love, but at the same time be grieved <laughs> over a child's responses, right? That, that's, that's part of parenting. Really, part, part of even the fact that you would grieve over those things is because you love so deeply. Um, as a perfect parent, God looks toward what is healthy and best for his children. And part of this is to hate that which hurts them. Uh, Cheryl shared with me an interesting quote. This is from Rebecca Manley Pippert. She says, love detests what destroys the beloved. I thought that was interesting. Love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The more the father loves his son the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. So in in that light, you you can say that what God calls, what what we talk about, uh, what God calls pleasing versus unpleasing 
is not, is not about just following kind of a collection of arbitrary rules. But it's about a, a loving father-child relationship. His desiring is his children to partake in what is really, truly good. That we'd reflect the life that's in us. Benefiting ourselves and benefiting others. This is a life that we should be walking in. Again, that, that, that word that, that talks about living in is, is, is literally walking in. And, and, it, and it doesn't even say running. Uh, there's an author, Leon Morris, says that it's a steady, if unspectacular, progress. <laughs> kind of like, so sometimes, you know, our, our, pro, our progress of faith is not always running. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it's just walking. It's just, it's just a steady, if unspectacular, progress. A steady movement forward in which God is capturing our minds and capturing our attitudes and capturing our activities in increasing measure. And that it's always increasing, as, as, as Paul has already said, that your love would increase, you know, more. And here he says that this walk, this life, this obedience to the Lord would be ever increasing. That it would just be, as Paul says, more and more. And this happens as we continue to submit every corner to the Lord, to the Lordship of Jesus. Even those dark corners, we let God's light penetrate into those corners. It's, it's the authority by which the apostle instructs, the authority of the Lord Jesus. And it's there by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're sanctified, this, this word that means that we're made holy. And in Scripture, it's interesting, again, we, we are made holy because we are forgiven and we are given Christ's righteousness. We are made holy. He has taken our sin. He has given us righteousness. So when we stand before God, He sees Christ's righteousness. We're made holy, but then there's also a process of sanctification, a process of being made holy, where this process is bringing us up to the position that He already says we are. That all happens under the lordship of Christ. So what Paul's, as Paul continues, he's saying that even, even in moral purity and even specifically in regards to sex, what he's talking about is not man-made instruction. It's God-given, Holy Spirit-sanctifying, lordship of Jesus instruction. Not, they're not, these aren't some just ancient ideas of some, of some you know, backward society. God-given, Holy Spirit-sanctifying, Lordship of Jesus instruction. Paul says to reject it is not to reject man, or it could say, maybe say not to reject him, not to reject his words, but it is to reject God and his Holy Spirit, whom Ephesians 4.30 says we can grieve. Leon Morris again says, the person who takes sexual sin lightly, who sees it as something that does not matter much, is in effect treating God as of no account, for the prohibition is his. So, so that's, I just want to take the beginning, the first half, to just kind of lay out the framework. That's the framework of Paul's instruction. He's saying that, that this moral instruction is about a life that relationally looks to please God, and is entering freely under the rightful dominion of Jesus being Lord in every area of my life. Is your life coming under his lordship? 
You might say, he's my savior. I've trusted in him. I want to go to heaven. I want, I want to be reconciled to God. Is he your Lord? They've got to go hand in hand. Scripturally, it, it would make no sense to the apostles that they wouldn't go hand in hand. Is he your Lord? To be saved by him is to enter into that rightful dominion over our lives. So one process of this uh, part of this process of sanctification under Jesus' authority and lordship should be reflected in our attitude toward sex. Um, Paul says that the follower of Jesus must, we could say, cut ties with sexual immorality. And when you see that phrase "sexual immorality" in Scripture, it's it's usually kind of a catch-all phrase. That's talking about all forms of sexual sin. Now, the, the world that he's writing in um, and the cultures that he's writing to, again, Thessalonica is in modern-day Greece. Um, it was the capital of Macedonia at the time. So this, this Greco-Roman culture was a culture that was extremely, much like our culture has become, and I don't say that to be you know, cute, or it's just the reality, right? Much like our culture has become, it was extremely sexually promiscuous. Uh, Sex featured predominantly in worship of some of the false deities, right? I think sex still features predominantly in people's worship. And And what I mean by that is I think whenever you have something on the throne in your life and your heart that you're devoting your energy and your heart and your mind to, it, it becomes something that, that you become a, a just obsessed with and you actually start to serve. It, it, it's a form of worship. And that was very common and it was overt in these cultures. Um, prostitution was common. Uh, sexual slavery was common. Homosexuality was common. Uh, sexual licentiousness was was not considered wrong, it was considered normal. Uh, and it, often there was a double standard, which there often is in many cultures. You know, if you had a wife, the wife was expected to be, uh, expected to be pure and keep to the home, and, but the man could go out and do what he wanted. I say, do, do, you know, the, Paul's words, if you said any differently, would just run in very stark contrast. The culture. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and again, it's not that God says sex is bad. And I think that's where the church has sometimes um, done a real disservice to this topic. Um, and, or to deny that we're created, as I said, as sexual beings. It's the abuse of sex. I mean, very, very clear. It's the abuse of sex that is unpleasing to God. Um, It's the abuse of sex that has damaged a lot of people. I mean multitudes, multitudes of people. And and again, we keep toying with it in our culture and and people are still hurting by it and they're kind of like, well, it almost like does not compute. I thought this was normal and lives are getting destroyed. Cheryl and I have a wood stove in our home and we love that wood stove. Cheryl often says, uh, that if we didn't have the wood stove, she would die in the winter. She doesn't say it that way. She would die. 
if I lived in Tayo County in the winter without a wood stove, I would die. And um, because it, 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 it brings warmth, warmth, right? It's very functional to the house. It brings warmth. You come into our house in the, in the middle of January, you know probably if you've been there, you come in like shorts and shorts. And it, it gets warm in our house. But it also, it, it, has, it has a way of even just bringing comfort and beauty. You can sit in front of the fire. Cheryl especially spends hours reading um, in front of that fire. It's beautiful and functional. But yet outside of that box... Right? If, if all of a sudden that fire was on our curtains and on our carpet and on our walls, and on, all of a sudden then the same fire that was functional and brought tremendous beauty, comfort, and pleasure has a force of absolute destruction. Absolute destruction. And likewise, likewise sex, when enjoyed in God's rightful confines... The, protected and honored in a marriage covenant between one man and one woman. And it needs to be honored there, too. If I could just make a quick note to that. It needs to be honored there because there's abuses of sex even in marriage relationships. It's meant to be a beautiful and pleasurable expression of intimacy and love. It's also how functionally God has populated the earth. And sex is so intimate, in fact, that the Bible says that when two bodies come together, there's this mysterious oneness that happens between two people. And you get this sense when Paul says that in 1 Corinthians that that, that he's saying it's sacred. It's sacred. And, And so to abuse that is to abuse what is sacred. God doesn't look to restrict us concerning sex uh, to only restrict us, but it's really a matter of what does life and life more abundant look like? What life and life more abundant looks like in this area is that I would not be mastered by sexual immorality. That's what abundant life looks like. It's not just this heavy restriction. What does abundant look like, life look like? That I wouldn't be mastered by sexual immorality, but that I would a- approach it and only enjoy it in what God says is healthy and good. Uh, Paul says that the followers of Jesus must avoid sexual immorality and each of you should learn to control his own body. What, what, if you're talking about, if, if there's something that has to come under control, what's assumed? What's that? It's out of control? Or, or, can, or certainly can be out of control, right? It's something, it's something that has to be reined in. Um, the reality is that, that practically everyone, and, and I would say it, there's probably varying degrees to this, um, practically everyone, certainly every adult, at one level or another has sexual desire. We said that's part of God's design. The problem is, is that natural sexual appetite as it's been designed by God, has gone awry through our sin, through our rebellion. It's been twisted. So nearly all of us then, as broken people, as sinful people, have sexual desire that falls outside of God's design. Nearly all of us deal with that. Um, And when given into it, uh, again, it could be an obsession with sex, It could be an obsession with a woman's body. 
It could be, it could be uh, continual lust of the eyes. It might be unchecked fantasies of the mind. It might be, uh, it might be sex out, outside of marriage in any, any way. It might be, be um, same-sex attraction and so on. But Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Self-control. So the assumption of Scripture is that with the Spirit of God, there can be mastery over these appetites. That there can be a healthy mastery over my mind, that it just doesn't run on autopilot. There can be a healthy mastery over our bodies, our cravings, our impulses. Paul assumes that that unbelievers, those who do not know God, um, that a a common reflection of their life will be that they're loose in this area. And and he uses the word heathen. That's that's often, um, seems like such a harsh word, right? But the heathen, and and what that word really means, it's often translated uh, Gentile, actually. It really is just talking about, in, in Jewish terms, someone who stands outside of God's community of Israel, So here it's applied to someone who's standing outside of God's grace community that's reflected in those who have received Jesus in the church, someone who doesn't know God. So he says the heathen, with them we would expect demonstrations of a lack of self-control, that there would be this passionate lust and unbridled sexual desire outside of what God calls good. And the world tells us, and, and again, if we're just being honest, The message of the world is that we cannot control our sexual desire. That is is a common message of the world, that we cannot control our sexual desire. And that it's almost like it's just a given that you would feed it in all kinds of unhealthy ways. And if if you even speak about controlling sexual desire, a lot of times it's tantamount to saying that would be inner torture for a person. Or, or, or maybe even worse, that, that it would be a denial of their personal rights, as we're told that sexual identity is, is, is as innate to a person's biological makeup as gender. But even when I say gender, that's questioned by our culture, right? Or, or race. But the Bible never approaches sex this way. The, sex, according to the Bible, is a gift and a privilege, not a right. Sex should be in the healthy confines of a marriage between one man and one woman. Sex still should be selfless. It it should be a matter of a shared giving. It should never be selfish. Um, Sex is an appetite that needs to come under the lordship of Jesus, under the control of the Holy Spirit, not indulged in kind of haphazardly as the glutton would deal with his food. Allow me a really quick side note here. Um, All this is true, but as Christians, we are not called to be morality police in our culture. Right? It's interesting. I, I sometimes wonder where Christians get the idea that we're meant to be morality police. Paul says really clearly, listen to this. Paul says, This is in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I have written you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. (laughs) But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone 
Now, again, the context of this is anyone, not that they would never fail, but people that are just obstinately persisting in unrepentive sin. Uh, not to associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, in other words, a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a swindler, a drunkard, or uh, slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Then he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? That's Paul speaking. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. We are not called to be morality police. We're called to be distinctly different in our culture, and that difference should be these people know God. And because they know God, their values and their perceptions and their attitudes and their conduct fall in line with a life that knows God and has been changed by God. And that should be not a bludgeoning hammer to the world, but a light to the world. What's, but what's normal in the world should not be normal in the church. That's still true. What's normal in the world should not be considered normal in the church. So what, what, what's particularly alarming to me is how often passionate lust is so prevalent in the church, among God's people. And again, I don't say this to add guilt. I, I say this to like, let's have a reality check. Let's be honest with this. Why is it that so many Christians are trapped in sexual sin? Why is it that so many, so many Christians have bought into worldly values when it comes to sex? Why is it that so many Christian leaders, that you watch the news day after day after day, and Christian leaders are found to be guilty of, of sexual abuse? That should be, in a sense, rightly to our shame. We need to do better. Why is sexual addiction, why is addiction to pornography, sexual misconduct, sexual abuse so prevalent among those who call themselves followers of Jesus and those who say they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God? I sometimes think that what has one of the most debilitating things, especially for men in the church, has been sexual sin. And then, especially in our day, the prevalence of pornography. We say, where are the men? And I, I know this isn't a catch-all for everything. I don't want to say it's a catch-all for anything. Where are the men? Why are they not stepping up? Well, they feel ashamed and guilty all the time, and Satan is the accuser of the brethren. You scumball, you know what you did this week. And sexual sin has so many men in the church trapped and then ineffective among God's people. does not have to be that way. Let me pause real quick and ask you, what are the roots of sexual sin? And when I say, what are the roots of sexual sin? Think of it this way. What is the, what is the good that God has created in sex? The good that he's created. And how has that been twisted by sin? What are the roots? What is the good he's created, and how has that been twisted? 
Any thoughts? Okay. Okay, great. Great. Thank you, Maggie. People are scared right now. We're talking about sex in church. Anything else? Maybe even if, right? Maybe. Right. Yeah. Maybe you don't love them yet, but yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I really, I really think biblically, and we've, we've touched on these things. Sex is about intimacy and oneness, right? It's about intimacy and oneness within the context of love, within the context of um, commit a committed love relationship, and it's actually, it's actually. I think a picture, if you're honest with scripture, in a lot of ways, sex is a picture, and hopefully this doesn't weird you out, of the deep, deep spiritual intimacy that God wants with his people. Right? Because when, when God's people walked away and they worshipped other idols, what did he say? You've, you've committed adultery. You've gone to bed with these other lovers. Right? So really it's about this, this deep, even spiritual intimacy. <coughs> And I really believe that, that the abuse of sex is a, is a misguided search for that intimacy. That when you get down to the root of it, it's a misguided search for the intimacy hole in your heart. And you know what? It's never going to fill it. It's never going to fill it. And in fact, you're going to have the law of diminishing results. And it's gonna, you're high just like any drug. If you're just abusing sex, and use, it's just going to get less and less and less. And you're going to try more and more and more and go to places you never thought you'd go before because it's the law of diminishing results. It's this misguided search of intimacy. Instead of selflessly giving in a committed love relationship, it becomes about control and power. It's just the opposite, Right? It becomes about selfishly taking possession of another person's body, even if it's absent of love, even if it's absent of commitment. And that's why even Jesus says, even looking lustfully at, at someone is, is heart adultery, because you're taking captive that which is not yours. You're, taking, you're selfishly taking command, taking possession of someone's body without them knowing it, with no love, with no commitment. And then sin, sexual sin begins to destroy. I, I'm really convinced of this. It begins to destroy our ability to relate intimately to God, to our spouse, and then even in friendship. 
with one another. People don't like intimacy, true intimacy, healthy intimacy, cannot be processed. It's a sin that, that is against God's order. It takes a, it, 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 It's a denial of what he says is good, right, just and fair, but it's also against other people because Paul says we can take advantage as we talk about other people. And it's also, it's also a sin, interestingly, that, that Paul says is against our own bodies. Against our own bodies. He, say, he says this in 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to wrap up soon. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. So it's like he's distinguishing this. So sometimes I say, why does it need to be distinguished? It needs to be distinguished because it's an offense against God. It's an offense against others. It's an offense against your own body. And for the Christian, he says, do you not, do you not know that your body is a what? Temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God. You are not your own. God, it's like Paul saying, you're treating your body like it's your own. And it's, you're not your own. You're bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. Let me wrap up. I, I believe we must return, and it's, I'm going to put this simply. We must return to trusting God and putting ourselves under the authority of Jesus when it comes to sex and sexual desire. Well, you, sound, you say that sounds so simple, but that's the, that's the heart of it. You're not trusting God. You're not trusting that what he says is good and beautiful and healthy. You're not putting that area of your life under the authority of Jesus. There should be nothing that masters us but Christ alone. There should be nothing, no overriding influence in the Christian's life than the Holy Spirit of God. But I'm going to suggest to you that part of this process for the church has to be that we stop creating an environment in which all discussion of sexual matters or sexual struggles are taboo. And then there's this constant false pretense that everybody's probably doing okay and no one probably battles with lust like I do. That pretense and that quietness actually ends up destructive to the body. We all struggle. And we need to be there lovingly to encourage one another. I believe the church should be a place of safety. And it should be a place of honesty and a place of confession where there's relationships built, that there's accountability, loving accountability, and that in the, within the church, as you come to God, there's forgiveness, there's redemption, there's restoration, and that we're collectively surrendering our passions to Jesus being our Lord. If you're trapped in sexual sin, there's hope and there's forgiveness in Jesus. Things can be better than they are for you right now. If you're trapped in cycles of sexual addiction, I'm going to be bold enough to say, get help. Treat it like you would any other addiction. 
Go to talk to someone you trust. If you need to, connect to a counselor. Connect to someone who will keep you accountable. Find, find some rhythms in, in your life that, that are really healthy in this area. Because there's better than what you're living right now. I want to see, see the men in the church effective. I want to see a place where men and women stop hurting themselves and hurting others and, and grieving the Holy Spirit and have victory in this area. And that it's not this stale, cold uh, following of a bunch of arbitrary rules from this deity that just wants to make things hard, but it's in the relationship of a God, with a God that loves us and we just want to please. Will we commit to such things? Let's pray in the name of Daniel. Father God, I, I thank you for sex. I don't know if I've ever opened a prayer that way before. Um, I thank you that it's beautiful. I thank you that you gave it to us as a privilege, as a gift, not a right. I thank you that you were that you took, maybe we can even say, the risk on us to trust us with something like sex. And you know better than we do how destructive the abuse of sex has been. Lord, I know there, are, there have to be people sitting here, even amongst the 80 of us, that have been abused. To where sex is just ugly and hurtful. Lord, I pray that you heal their hearts. I pray that they're bold enough to step out and get help, to know that there's healing in Christ, there's healing in the body of Christ, there's healing in talking to someone about it. Lord, may you be the master and the only master of our lives. May we not get convinced that such things are impossible to control, but that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would live the abundant life not mastered by sexual immorality, but trusting you in what you say is good and that our lives, our morality, our sexual desire would fall under the lordship of Jesus and there we would find freedom and life. Pray these things in Jesus' name.